So in the context of these different forms of violence and scenarios of violence that I explore in the book, Medellin has seen some of the most kind of radical changes over time. The PRI always won presidential elections in Mexico up to 2000. So what that meant is that the PRI had the ability to really kind of control everything, politics from the top down. It was a very hierarchical party. And this ability was also reflected in the way that criminality was controlled or dealt with. Welcome to the History of Drugs in Society. This week I speak to Professor Angelica Duran-Martinez, who teaches political science at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. We explore a few of the ideas and case studies in her book, The Politics of Drug Violence. The book explores the interaction of political structures, security structures, and drug markets, and what the results are on violence, specifically in terms of the visibility and the frequency of violence. We were able to get to all five cities where Angelica had focused her research for the book. That includes Cali and Medellin in Colombia, and Ciudad Juarez, Cuyacán, and Tijuana in Mexico. Angelica provides an interesting comparison of violence across these cities, exploring the different influences of what led to the violence that was witnessed over time. Before getting to the interview, some quick housekeeping notes. My goal is to keep releasing the history episodes once a month, and at least one interview a month. Unfortunately, my health hasn't been where I've wanted it to be, so we'll see if I end up changing that over the end of the summer. But I do hope to have the next history episode out by the end of August. I'm still figuring out the next topic that I want the next set of interviews to explore, and if you have any ideas, please feel free to email me on drugshistory at gmail.com or on Twitter at drugshistory. Without further ado, on to the interview, which starts with Angelica introducing herself. My name is Angelica Duran-Martinez, and I'm an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, and um, I do research on violence and crime uh, in general, but specifically also in Latin America. And I actually want to start by asking, uh, I guess the bulk of the interview will be about some of the research that directly informed uh, and was a result of your book, The Politics of Drug Violence. And it mentions that there are sort of two novel ideas that were presented as part of the book uh, when it comes to exploring the complex patterns of violence that result from drug trade. Uh, And the first of these relates to something uh, you refer to as visibility. Do you mind just talking about what visibility means in relation to violence and why it's an important thing to understand? Sure. So I can tell you about that, maybe telling you how I came to think about that idea. So when I started doing research on this topic, um, the first places I went to were in Colombia, which is where I'm from. Um, And as I was rethinking the history of drug trafficking and violence in the two cities that I work on in the book, which is uh, Medellin and Cali in Colombia, Um, I started to realize that there was just more than variation in how many people were killed, to put it in blunt terms. But there is a lot of uh, difference in terms of how people perceive violence and that a lot of that difference in perception came from how violence was actually happening. So Cali was actually the place that first made me think about this when I started seeing and collecting information about the way that bodies were disposed of back in the mid-80s, early 90s, which was basically they will appear in the river without fingertrips, fingerprints. And um, 
uh, or that there were like all these efforts to disappear the bodies. And then in contrast to that, I started doing research in Mexico. And at the time I started doing research in Mexico, the opposite was happening in Mexico, which was instead of hiding the evidence from the killings, what you will see is that the, the attacks and the forms of violence seem to be getting more and more public. And the one thing that was getting really all over the news at the time was the beheadings and how you know criminals will behead bodies and put different uh, parts of the bodies in different places. And um, so that there was this effort, instead of hiding violence, of exposing it. And that's really what the idea of visibility is, that there are um, moments when perpetrators, when in, in this case criminal actors, try to hide the evidence of the attacks they carry out. But there are other times when instead of doing that, they seem to be just going to extreme efforts to try and expose the evidence of these attacks and sometimes even claim responsibility for these attacks, which is counterintuitive. You know, if you're a criminal, you don't want to be prosecuted for your attacks or you don't want to claim any responsibility. So the extreme form of visibility is that um, is that moment when criminals claim responsibility for the attacks they carry out, but it's also all those cases where even if they don't claim responsibility, they seem to be exposing the evidence, like sending messages. So it can be like really extreme methods of violence, like, as I said, the beheadings, but it can be also how many people are killed in a single attack or where they are killed. And all these things together... Um, are what constitutes this notion of visibility, moments where criminals seem to counterintuitively start to expose more and more the evidence of the attacks they carry out. Thank you for for explaining. And we'll definitely have some follow-ups on visibility, but I figure before we can kind of dig a little deeper on that side, it might be best to talk about the second contribution, main contribution of your book, and just to, to paraphrase your book directly, this contribution relates to a political economy framework that looks at the interaction of the state security apparatus and the amount of competition in illegal drug markets. So just to, to be clear with terms, do you mind just defining state security apparatus and what can, what can fall under that umbrella? So when I, so state security apparatus defines to all the elected authorities and the enforcement agencies that have responsibilities in controlling violence and in enforcement, in, in law enforcement. Um, and the reason why I started thinking about this notion of a state security apparatus rather than talking about police only was realizing that when you really think about how states control crime or not control crime, it's not really only about the police or the military. It's about how elected officials at different levels and bureaucracies interact, because ultimately those who make the decisions about how a given security policy is carried out is elected officials. You know, it can be a major, it can be the president, it can be a governor, depending on where we are. So that if you really want to understand security policy, you really need to think about these two things together, how elected authorities and how enforcement agencies, uh, mainly the police, the military and, um, and intelligence agencies, how they interact uh, in, the, in the planning, but also in the actual uh, application of enforcement policies. And you also bring up the term cohesion in the context of both the, the state uh, and that directly relates to the security apparatus. Do you mind just mentioning how how those two interrelate? So, so yeah, when basically the idea of cohesion is when you have high levels of coordination between these elements, right? So I just talked about elected authorities, I talked about 
police, which in many cases is not just one police, but different levels of police and different. So if you think about the US, for example, you have federal police, you have state police, you have municipal, and you have... So the cohesion is when all these elements and all these actors within the state security apparatus have a high level of coordination. Um, and by contrast to that, you have fragmented security apparatus, which is where where you don't have like really an easy coordination between these different actors uh, of the security apparatus. And this has implications for the two main things that I discuss in the book in terms of the relation between states and criminal actors, which is this level of cohesion can determine how effective are the states in implementing certain policies. Or also, and this is kind of the other side of the story, is how well they can protect uh, criminal actors in corrupt arrangements. Um, So if you have a lot of people working together, it is easier to implement the policies, but it is also easier to protect criminal actors. Um, But if you have a very fragmented state and you have a very fragmented security apparatus, both coordination and protection become more complicated. Um, and, you know, maybe as we talk, we'll, we'll go through some of the examples, but when you have fragmentation, you can have a police agency that is protecting a criminal agency, but you may have a central or a federal police agency that is actually going after a criminal. So because they are not necessarily aligned and coordinated, um, the protection, as I said, and enforcement become more complicated. And these points all relate to state, the state or elements of the state. And if we jump now to kind of a different part of this overall question and look at the drug markets, uh, when it comes to the competition in the drug markets, what are some of the kind of the variations in terms of the kind of operations that are witnessed from the illegal organization side? So uh, to think about criminal um, criminal groups and criminal actors, um, they're really kind of a different type of legal actor in the, or a market actor, right? Like they, so when we think of legal markets and you can think of legal markets that range from being very competitive to markets that are not. And you see the same thing in the legal world. You have cases where you have one organization or one group that has a lot of control over the market. And you have cases where they are, uh, either more oligopolistic or they are even more competitive, like completely fragmented as well. Um, so that you have all this variation in the way that when you look at a specific location, you may find cases where there is one group that controls a lot of things, but then you go to another location or even another time period, and what you find is that there are different actors or that there are even conflicts within organizations. Um, and this, in some ways, resembles what you will see in legal markets, right? Like there is this wide variation. Um, and I think both, just to put these things together, what we just talked about, the state security apparatus and what we're just talking about, about the competition in the illegal markets. I think part of my interest in really highlighting this variation is that when we think about criminal groups, what people have in mind generally is like overpowerful groups that just cross borders and that control everything, right? And and what we when we actually go to a reality of the cases, it's much more varied. You have a lot more forms of interaction and a lot a lot more forms of organization. Um, in the book, I don't really get much into the internal structure, but you see many different types of organizations. Some some that are more centralized than others. Some that some that are more networked. I focus on the aspect of competition because it's at the core of 
of my explanation for violence. Um, but yeah, the core here is that there is a lot of variation in the way that criminal groups interact and the, the way that they behave. Um, and that there is a portion of them that becomes highly monopolistic and like kind of very powerful. And that's kind of the image that we often see in movies. But there is a, another portion of them, and I will say probably even the majority, that are much more networked, that are much more competitive, that is not that clear, like highly hyper monopolized market. Uh, you also mentioned that the role of the type of armed coercion uh, and, and the role that it can play is very important. Do you mind just explaining a bit of what that means and how it affects violence? Yeah, so so I think it kind of follows up nicely on what I was just saying, which is, again, when we think about like the ideas that we have about criminal groups or drug traffickers, is like you think about these overpowerful, always super armed groups that have like... Um, they they almost have like armies behind them and sometimes they do of course um but the reality is that again when you see when organizations are carrying out violence how they do it they do it actually in different ways and what made me think about this is that as i was doing research i realized that one big assumption that sometimes you see a lot in policy circles is that criminal groups are always using gangs like street gangs to carry out violence and what I realized when I was doing research is that actually you see a much more complicated reality, which in some cases they do have youth gangs and they try to use those youth gangs to carry out violence. But in some cases they don't need to do so because they already have kind of an internal system and a strong system for carrying out violence. They already have people within the organization that have the abilities and that and they have the numbers. So that understanding really how an organization carries out violence once they need to carry it out is very important, right? And we'll get more to these patterns, but when part of what I realized and and what I discovered when I was doing my research is that in cases when criminal groups end up using youth gangs more, that's in the cases where you can see violence skyrocketing and kind of reproducing itself more and more. Because it is in those cases, first they have larger groups of people who end up being engaged in violence, but also because this opens uh, a space for violence to reproduce itself in many different ways. It doesn't mean that the other cases where criminal groups don't use youth gangs to the same extent are not complicated or bad in many other ways, but in those cases, violence tends to reproduce less quickly and less in less extreme ways than it does when you have criminal groups using gangs uh, very actively. And I, I guess that just to make clear what the, the other option will be, if you don't use gangs, what do they do generally? Well, they already may have kind of loyal soldiers within the organization, uh, people who are part of the organization and who have been carried out violence for a long time. Sometimes it's even their corruption and their relations with police forces that end up giving them kind of the muscle and the armed force that they need to carry out violence. So depending on what resources and what type of organization we're talking about, when they come to a point where we can talk almost of a war, when violence is really high, they may have different possibilities of fulfilling that need of carrying out violence, both in terms of arms, but also in terms of the people that they need, the soldiers they need to carry out this violence. Thank you for laying out some of the the initial context so we can more deeply explore 
Uh, and just to quickly recap, so we talked about the state security side, at least at a high level, the concept of cohesion, the concept of kind of what does the competition look like within the market, uh, and looking at, you know, for the groups that are committing some of this violence, who is kind of perpetuating it on their side, if I kind of overviewed that correctly. And so all of these factors now come together to interestingly interplay in terms of the kind of the patterns of violence that emerge. And you, you alluded to this earlier with just some of the differences that you were seeing between Cali uh, and what was going on in Mexico at the same time. And I figure for this part, you know, there's a great uh, table and you have some wonderful tables throughout the book that can really help visualize and break this information down. But given that we're in an audio medium, uh, you know, it might be helpful to just explore at least a few of the, of the patterns. And here it was one side is sort of the frequency, which can be low or high, and the other side is the visibility, which can be low or high. Yes. Starting with the, the low frequency, low visibility scenario, do you mind just talking about uh, what's kind of the, the context and background of when uh, the low frequency, low visibility violence scenario might arrive? Absolutely. So I guess that, so I think what the what it's important in, in the overall framework of the book is that when we really want to understand why violence happens, we really need to look at those interactions between the state security apparatus that we just talked about and this competition in the illegal markets and these forms of armed coercion. And so the core of the explanation of the book is really like when we tend to think about drug violence and when we tend to think about drug trafficking, we always assume that violence is kind of an inherent part of drug trafficking, right? But what's interesting here is that there is really a lot of variation in how much violence drug trafficking generates. And the, the gist of the book is really saying, if you really want to understand this variation in violence, you cannot look at criminal actors in isolation. You cannot look at, at what they do. You really need to think out what the state is doing at the same time. So this interaction between the state security apparatus and the competition in the criminal market is really what creates the different types of violence that I characterize in the book. Um, so like in a nutshell, my argument is that when you have a very fragmented state security apparatus, it's in those cases where you're likely to see very high levels of visibility. Because when a state is fragmented, it is more complicated for the state to enforce the law and it can also become much more complicated for the state to provide protection, reliable protection to criminal actors. And in these circumstances, criminal actors may have less incentives to, hi to hide violence if they need it. So if you think about it, a criminal actor may refrain from using violence, if it highly visible violence, if it notes that the state can come very quickly after them, if they carry out violence, or if they, not, if they know that the state can protect them, actually. And because these two things become more complicated in a case of a state fragmentation, that's when you're going to see high visibility violence. And that whereas the competition between the criminal groups, I argue in the book, is really determines just how much violence do we see. When we see a market that is more monopolistic, when there is just one organization that is kind of controlling the market, we are less likely to see violence in general, just because there is less need to do it. You may have violence that is used to to discipline members within the organization, to go after rivals, 
that or to go after rivals that are trying to take power, but there is not a full-blown competition. So in these cases, we are likely to see less violence. So when you put these two things together, you have these different scenarios. So the first one that you asked about this low frequency, um, low visibility is a case where you don't have a lot of competition. And when you have a state that is fairly cohesive, and because it's fairly cohesive, um, it can either go after criminals very easily, or it can also protect them uh, with high levels of reliability. And in these circumstances, criminal actors don't need to use a lot of violence to compete and don't need to use a lot of violence to challenge the state. So this is kind of a low-level equilibrium. In a way, you will say kind of the best equilibrium in some ways because in terms of violence, but it's generally also an equilibrium where there can be a lot of control by the criminal actor and also, in, in many cases, high levels of corruption, but cohesive corruption, corruption that is well-coordinated. So that's kind of the first scenario. Um, should we go through yours? Actually, n- now hearing you kind of overview it, I think it might be more helpful to maybe jump to the case studies and kind of speak about them as, as more specific scenarios arise, if that's all right. Sure. Yeah, so, you know, I was thinking... Overall, you looked at a number of cities. I believe it was five cities between Colombia and and Mexico. And starting off maybe in Colombia with Medellin, uh, you looked at four periods overall there as well. Uh, kind of the the more infamous period of 84 to 93, which is uh, what many people think of associated with Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. Uh, and then kind of three periods of change that followed from there. So I wonder if that, if at that at that point when things started changing uh, after the death of Pablo Escobar, and though there was obviously so much more going on than just that one headline, would you mind just speaking as to how some of these elements that we just talked about in terms of the security, the market competition, and the armed cohesion was kind of changing and what that resulted in. So Medellin of the five cities that I look at in the book, Medellin is probably the one that people have heard most about, I will assume, because of Pablo Escobar. But also I will say it's one of the most complex cases of violence, um, of urban violence in Latin America, because it has this very long history of violence with multiple armed actors, not only drug traffickers, but actors within the Colombian armed conflict. And, and it has seen a lot of variations. So in the context of these different forms of violence and scenarios of violence that I explore in the book, Medellin has seen some of the most kind of radical changes uh, through over time. So the initial period, which was when Pablo Escobar, it was the period of Pablo Escobar, that's kind of the peak of high frequency, high visibility violence. So it was a time when there was a lot of violence in Medellin. Um, it it became the most violent city in the world in 1991, um, having very, very high homicide rates. And at the time, starting around 1986, but especially around 1989, it was also a case of high visibility because this was the time when Pablo Escobar engaged in this fight against the state, the Colombian state, fighting extradition or the possibility that criminals will be extradited to the U.S., and in this fight, like Pablo Escobar used very visible method, methods like car bombs. But those were probably the most visible ones. But there was also a lot of violence happening in the streets 
because violence was being outsourced to to the many youth gangs that exist in Medellin, and some of which were not very violent, but as the city and as Pablo Escobar became more and more powerful, all violence was outsourced to to criminal act to to youth gangs. So this led to this scenario of just an explosion of the frequ- the frequency of violence and the visibility of violence was also very high because even the Pablo Escobar. Um, of course, had a lot of corrupt relationships with people in the state. Pablo Escobar never achieved to have like a cohesive control of the state apparatus in Colombia. And that's again, because at the time, the Colombian state was was very fragmented. So Pablo Escobar had a lot of support among certain sectors uh, of the state or individual politicians, individual police officials. But at the same time, he also had a lot of opposition. So this com- this combination between not having having a very fragmented state that had a hard time both coordinating the actions against Escobar, but also having a hard time like guaranteeing any kind of uh, reliable protection to him, uh, was kind of in the background of how this period came about in Medellin. And then what we see over time is that these the circumstances and these forms of violence start to change as both the characteristics of the state and the characteristics of the of the criminal world uh, or the criminal organizations start to change. Um, so after Pablo Escobar is killed in, a, in an operation that involves the Colombian state, Escobar's enemies, in, in kind of a very uh, eclectic and, and not necessarily the most transparent alliance, but led to the killing of Pablo Escobar. Of course, it takes out one of the main actors uh, in drug trafficking in Colombia, but it leaves all these organizations that were still very active in drug trafficking. So there is kind of a vacuum in criminal power in Medellin, but it doesn't go away. And what happens is that at that time, the dynamics of the armed conflict in Colombia start to change. And Medellin also had presence of guerrillas and paramilitaries. And when paramilitaries start entering the city and becoming more powerful, it is also a time when the the characteristics of the criminal world start to change. So right after Escobar dies, is a period of fragmentation still in competition between criminal actors, but the visibility of violence goes down was once Escobar is out. And, and so this competition remains for a while, but then towards 1998, when, when paramilitaries enter the city and they start becoming this very complicated mix of political and criminal organization, they achieve to create a sort of monopoly in Medellin, not a, not a complete monopoly, but they achieve a level of control that not even Escobar had at his time. Um, so they start controlling very strongly the youth gangs. They are able to defeat the guerrillas. So that changes towards 2002, 2003. That changes the criminal market in Medellin from being one of high competition to being one where there is um, kind of more domination of one particular faction. Not an absolute monopoly, but one that was much more controlled than it was in the past. And then at the same time, the Colombian state had changed at the local level in Medellin. There had been many positive and negative changes um, in the state, positive in the sense of much more capacity, uh, new policies that were being put in place that were actually good, and some others that were not so good that had to do with like stronger connections between paramilitaries and in the state and elected authorities. And in this combination, 
ends up leading to another period, which is the opposite contrast of the high level, high frequency, high visibility that you see in the early 1990s, and ends up being a period of actually low frequency, low visibility in the mid 2000s, which is a period where you have more control in the criminal market and also a state um, that ends up being much more cohesive. And that because of that, ends up being much more effective in enforcing the law, but also in providing some level of protection to these very fussy actors that are the paramilitaries and their connections with drug trafficking um, in Medellin. Um, So Medellin is a very complex case. I'm kind of giving you a very, very, I know, uh, a very short, but also may seem like a complicated story of what it's an incredibly fluid case. Um, but that because of this evolution in the power of criminal actors and in the power of the state, we've seen it gone from, from this very extreme period to one that seemed like a more peaceful period. And today, there was another peak of violence after that. Today, we are in a situation where criminal actors are still very much present in Medellin, but they have achieved, even though there is no a monopoly, they have achieved a level of coordination that where they have privileged, I will say, like a, a more regulated use of violence. So Medellin today is still violence with levels of criminality, but not comparable at all with what it was in the early 1990s. And I thought it was also very interesting how you highlighted that in the mid-2000s, uh, there was sort of the, the Medellin miracle, as it was later dubbed, I believe, but the in all of the urban revitalization and all the positive changes that happened into the city and I remember when I had first learned and read about that, it was all through this context of, oh, it was being, the city is being improved and cleaned up and there's no more crime. But it, it's so interesting getting to, or not no more crime, much less crime. But it, it's so fascinating getting to read your book in this kind of breakdown of how to think about it to realize that it's not as though the violence totally disappeared. It was just more going out of the eye of mainstream, say, media or for most individuals but the violence was still being perpetuated, just, yeah, not as visibly. Absolutely. And that, that was a key part of, of understanding that period imaging that started around 2003, when really homicide rates go down significantly. Um, but where you start seeing like, like a stronger efforts at hiding violence. Um, it is a still, I think that the decline of violence was still significant, but when you kind of think about like the other reasons. It was not just good policies, and some of them were really good, some socioeconomic policies that were implemented at the time in Medellin, but there was also the alternate story, which is basically this consolidation of criminal power um, in the hands of of a guy who was known as Don Berna at the time in Medellin, and that he, he really had achieved that ability to control the criminal world in Medellin in a way that not even Pablo Escobar was able to. And in terms of how things look like today, do you feel as though it's still categorized under the paradigm of high frequency, low violence? Um, no, I think, so Medellin, I think it depends comparatively. Um, so I think Medellin at this point, it is in a situation where you can still call it a low frequency, low visibility. Um so for a long time, Medellin was always one of the top more violent cities in Latin America. Um, and that's not the case anymore. Of course, that's also because some other places in Latin America have become very violent. So this is where the comparative aspect 
comes in. So Medellin still has, has high homicide rates, um, you know, depending on what, what exactly, what year we're talking about, it may be 25, 30, depending on 30 killings per 100,000 inhabitants. That's a still very high homicide rates. Um, the World Health Organization considers any homicide rate over 10 to be epidemic violence. So it is very high, right? But when we think about Medellin at the peak of the most violent year, had a homicide rate of 381 homicides per 100,000 inhabitants, then of course it is much lower. And it's and is lower than the, it, it's about the same as the national average in Colombia. Um, so with these caveats, I think it is still okay to characterize Medellin today as a situation where we have low frequency, low visibility. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there is no violence. As I said, you know, with these caveats, of, it is still a city that technically classifies as having epidemic levels of violence. And when you actually go there and realize that the dynamics of criminal groups and, and criminality are still very much active in the city, it is not all great news, but considering the history, it is a still a significant and a radical change. Looking at a, at a separate case study, but sticking within Colombia, if going to those the the earlier period where we had where you were talking about Pablo Escobar in the kind of the 1984 through early 90s period of high frequency and high visibility, what was kind of going on at Cali at the same time? So so yeah, and as I said, that that's kind of the the initial contrast that that led me to think about the argument I have the way I am, which is basically you had Pablo Escobar, which was the guy who was fighting the state uh, very openly, putting bombs, uh, you know, killing high-level politicians. And then you had the Rodriguez Orejuela brothers, who were the leaders of the Cali cartel, um, who had a very different approach. And like that will say openly, we don't kill cops, we just work with them. And we support them, uh, more or less. That's not their exact words. To be fair, I'm not in any way the first person. Like this, this contrast between the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel has one that has been highlighted for a long time. Um, and most of the time, it was attached to the fact that uh, the Rodriguez Orejuela brothers seemed to be socially different from Pablo Escobar, that they they were kind of business guys uh, who had more closer connections to the elites, whereas Pablo Escobar was really a popular guy who had risen up and was never able to completely fit in the political scene. Um, but as I was looking more and more into Cali, I realized that there was a deeper pattern that, of course, I, I think personalities did play a role in this story, but that was not the whole story. And the whole story had to do with the fact that the Cali cartel and the state in Cali were different from the state in Medellin. So historically, I think Medellin had a much more competitive political landscape, whereas Cali uh, was a much was a much tighter political landscape, um, where you had elites that had dominated politics in the city for a long time, and in the context of the book that state that the local level looked much more cohesive than that of Medellin in the 80s. So, and then because of that, the Cali cartel was able to foster and to create these links with the state, both at the local level and at the national level, that made it an organization that really benefited from having a lower profile because its contacts with the state 
uh, were, were deeper and were, were, were much more effective. And because of that, the Cali cartel really employed violence in a different way. But one thing that was clear for me to highlight, which is again in this idea of visibility, is that even though the Cali cartel didn't use visible violence as much as the Medellin cartel did, and they did use it, but not as much, they, they didn't kill major, major uh, politicians, they didn't use car bombs against the state, they did use them against the Medellin cartel, but not... Uh, but not against the state itself. Um, but that it was, even though they refrained from using that type of violence, what they were doing was trying to hide it. And, and the idea of hiding violence was precisely because they had this protection from the state. Keeping violence at the low level was a way for them to be able to keep using violence whenever they needed, but without necessarily sounding the alarms in a way that force enforcement against them. Um, so it created different patterns of violence in Cali. And then kind of going back to this idea of, of armed coercion that we talked about, because the Cali cartel had closer connections to the police and kind of had a, a much imbricated relationship with sectors of the state, um, they, they tried to use gangs, but they were not, they didn't do it on a, regular basis, as much as Pablo Escobar did, for example. And they, they weren't even not as interested in doing so. So they will use youth, youth gang members to carry out uh, some killings, but they never really tried to embrace gangs or to use them as systematically as it happened in Medellin. And because of that as well, I think Cali developed a pattern that was a pattern where a lot of violence occurred, but it was violence that was not as visible. It was still very high, and today Cali remains one of the most violent cities in Colombia, but never sounding the alarms or calling attention as much, partially because it did, did not develop those patterns of high visibility with an exception in a couple of years in the early 2000s and then later around 2008. But without like with those exceptions, most of the time, the patterns of violence in Cali have been much more stable than those of Medellin. Uh, again, a lot of violence because there has always been competition between criminal actors, even since those early times of the of the Cali cartel, but also uh, where state protection and state cohesion has been higher. And because of that, criminal actors, I think, enjoy more protection from the local state in, in Cali. And shifting over to, to Mexico now, I know uh, Cuyacan in Sinaloa has some similarities with uh, with Cali, especially in terms of kind of the framework that's mm-hmm. presented in your book. Do you mind just kind of mentioning what the similarities are around especially the visibility side? Yeah. So the main similarities that because so Sinaloa is a kind of the birthplace of criminal organizations in Mexico or most of them and because of that so the history of drug trafficking in Sinaloa dates to a, like in its modern version dates back to the 1950s and it's a small state and Culiacán being the capital of Sinaloa kind of was where some of these or criminal organizations and the leaders of these criminal organizations ended up taking roots and it was also a state and a city characterized by a very strict control of the, polit- of the main political party in Mexico for 70 years, which was the PRI. 
so the PRI basically controlled politics in Mexico uh, for 70 years or so. Uh, but there was still some variation between states, especially as we get closer to the 80s or 90s and, and the period of democratization in Mexico. But in Sinaloa, you couldn't see seeds of changes in political competition as early. So it was a state where you had strong criminal groups that because they had emerged there, they were very much kind of socially cemented and they had a very strong control. And then you have a political political relations that were also very cohesive because there was not a lot of political competition. And this combination really led to a creation of very strong links between the political class and the criminal actors in Sinaloa and in Culiacán, creating the same conditions as in Cali to create a situation where there was a lot of violence because criminal actors were very active, because they had rivals, because they had competition and internal disputes, but they they would never challenge the state directly. And they were actually try to ally with the state in many ways. So one thing that always called my attention of similarities between Cali and Culiacán, for example, is that both Cali and Culiacán had specific and very well-documented instances where criminals were actually uh, engaging in what we call horribly social cleansing, which is that effort of trying to get rid of low-level criminals, prostitutes, drug addicts, anything that is seen as a threat to the social order. And you can actually explain this by looking at that relationship with the state. Some of these criminal actors were actually seen as the allies of the state in maintaining that order, right? And I'm I'm doing quote unquote with my fingers as we talk, because of course it was a very particular type of order, a very corrupt one, but it was it was a, a, a mutually beneficial relationship. And because of that, you will see a lot of violence, but that violence was not necessarily directed towards towards the state or or towards challenging the state precisely because of that close relationship uh, between the state and criminal actors. And because of the fact that Culiacán, like Cali, was a place where competition and, and the political spectrum was really one where there was not a lot of political competition. Again, creating the circumstances for creating more of these cozy, reliable relations of protection between the states and criminal actors. To look at one major difference between uh, Cali and Cuyacan, and I guess in general between Colombia and Mexico, is sort of what's been happening in the last 10 to 15 years in Mexico with kind of an, an explosion of violence. And I guess beginning under the time of President Felipe Calderon, do you mind speaking to kind of what were, uh, especially again from the perspective of your framework, what were some of the changes that that uh, facilitated the explosion of violence as it did happen? So as I as I said, you know, when you when you think about uh, Culiacán and Sinaloa that had a history of drug trafficking since the 1950s, you can think about the same for Mexico. So Mexico, in its modern form, you can think about drug trafficking organizations going back to the 1950s. But for the most part, you will see a lot of violence and especially not a lot of this highly visible violence. Um, Again, Culiacán, for example, has always been much more violent than the rest of the country, but not with these attacks. Then in 2006, after Felipe Calderón Uh, President Felipe Calderón decides to officially declare a war against criminal organizations. And part of that war was deploying the military 
in places, in some places where there were already disputes between criminal groups or where criminal organizations were were thought to be very strong. So once the military is deployed to those places, dynamics of criminal competition that were already happening uh, kind of explode. So what happens in Mexico is a combination of some of the factors that I talk about in the in the book, but. So a clear present to what happened in Mexico in 2006 is the transition away from the power of the PRI, which, as I said, was the dominant political party for 70 years in Mexico. Uh, So the PRI always won presidential elections in Mexico up to 2000. So what that meant is that the PRI had the ability to really kind of control everything, politics from the top down. It was a very hierarchical party. And this ability was also reflected in the way that criminality was controlled or dealt with. So basically we have a a lot of evidence of how the PRI or or politicians within the PRI were able to basically struck agreements uh, with criminal actors to maintain this kind of low-level peaceful equilibrium, right, where criminal groups were, will operate, but without challenging the state, without carrying out a lot of violence. So once the PRI starts losing power, and this starts really in the 1990s, some people trace it even further back, but I will say 1990s is really the time when the PRI starts losing electoral power, because it starts losing elections at the local level, governorships. And then in 2000, it loses the presidential election. So once the PRI starts losing elections, it starts weakening the ability of the party and and the ability of the politicians to really control everything top down, including criminality. So those facts that used to be very cohesive in the past start to crumble. And again, so in this context is when Felipe Calderón decides to declare a war against criminal groups, but in the context of a state that was very fragmented where it was, there was a increasing political competition, where the alignment between different levels of, of government was very difficult. There were a lot of political conflicts. And then you add that the fact that he deployed the military, in some cases, initially without having the support of the, of the authorities locally, um, and basically just creates a lot of conflicts within the state. So when you add the fact that the transition to democracy and to and the transition away from the power of the PRI as the dominant political party in Mexico had started kind of breaking down pacts of protection. And then you add the deployment of the military in 2007. Then on the side of the state, you basically have this cocktail of a state fragmentation where a state didn't have the ability to really go after criminals very well. Um, but at the same time, it's not that corruption decreased, but simply that it just exploded in multiple different packs, none of which was really effective in regulating violence. So all these things end up leading to explosion of violence. And then on the side of criminal organizations, you start seeing more, more competition. And this actually goes back to the 1990s. So in the 19. 1980s, 1990s, you start seeing kind of changes in the drug trafficking market per se, um, many of which have to do with an increasing role of cocaine trafficking through Mexico. And this starts kind of building up, creating more conflicts between criminal groups. 
And these conflicts between criminal groups were already generating violence before Calderon declared the war, the war against criminal organizations. So once Calderon declares the war in, with, against criminal organizations and with these levels of political competition, uh, of criminal competition, you basically just have the cocktail, the perfect storm of circumstances leading to this explosion of violence that, that we see in Mexico. But of course, my book focuses on cities. So the way this played out in different cities was really mediated by the specific circumstances and the specific relationships between states and criminal actors in the cities that I look at. You know, unfortunately, we won't have time to delve into the last two case studies in the book in terms of Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez. But I did want to ask, there was one very interesting difference that, that I saw in your book in terms of how uh, how the the groups within Tijuana were able to sort of staff up the organization or the kind of armed coercion they went through specifically with the narco juniors. Do you mind speaking to that a little bit? Absolutely. So, so actually, I can tell you about the difference between Ciudad Juarez and Tijuana through that question. So when violence exploded in Mexico after Calderón deployed the military and, you know, just violence really, really became um, unleashed at, across the country, Ciudad Juarez was the case where initially saw the highest peak. Um, and then Tijuana also saw a very high peak of violence, but lower than that of Ciudad Juarez. So in Ciudad Juarez, homicide rates increased by 700% between 2007-2008. In Tijuana, they increased by 245%. So still a very high increase, but less than that of Ciudad Juarez. Both cities shared the fact that there were increasing conflicts between criminal groups. Um, but in Ciudad Juarez, the state was much more fragmented. There were many more conflicts between the state agencies than in Tijuana. And then on top of that, in Juarez, you had the perfect storm because criminal groups really didn't have internal uh, sources of power or, or internal soldiers. Um, and they started deploying more and more youth gangs that had existed in the city for a long time, but without being violent, uh, which is something very important to say. So in Ciudad Juarez, criminal actors used the youth gangs and started using them increasingly. Um, and this also was one factor that led to this explosion of violence in Ciudad Juarez. In Tijuana, that didn't happen. And in Tijuana, that didn't happen, first of all, because youth gangs were not as prominent as in Ciudad Juarez, but especially because uh, the Arellano Felix organization, which was one of the main criminal actors in Tijuana, never really use gangs in the city. And actually, at some point, just like in Culiacán or Cali, they were actually uh, the, the ones in charge of the social cleansing, again, social cleansing in quotes, um, just basically of this idea they were protecting and cleaning the city of perceived um, threats, including like low-level criminals. So the, the Arellano Felix organization never really used gangs. But they also did never use gangs because something that, as you say, is very particular, which was the narco juniors. And it was this situation um, where basically it was the children of the elites of Tijuana that ended up working uh, for the Arellano Felix organization. So this is really something quite remarkable because for obvious reasons, the, the people and the, the, the youth that are ended up, uh, end up being more likely 
to participate in criminal activities are, are kids from marginalized areas where they don't have a lot of opportunities. Um, but seeing the kids of the elites engaging with criminal groups um, was not is not very common, and that's what happened in Tijuana, where it was basically the children of elite classes that ended up being part of the organization and acting many times as their enforcers. Um, and I think that this partially came from the fact that the Arellano Felix brothers and the Arellano Felix family, they always tried to portray themselves as respectable uh, and wanted to be kind of part of this elite. So I think early on, they started kind of creating and nurturing these relationships within the elites of Tijuana. And that may be one of the reasons why we see this pattern where they end up using the narco juniors, as they are called, uh, and rather than, than deploying uh, gangs. Um, and also at some point they were using gangs from the other side of the border, from San Diego. And that may be also one of the reasons why there was really no use of local gangs. And this played out, as I said, in why Tijuana ended up being slightly less violent than, than Ciudad Juarez at the time of this hyperviolence in 2007-2008. But yeah, that's the story of the Narco Juniors, basically it's children from elites that ended up working for, for the Arellano Felix organization. And one final, uh, one thing to wrap up the interview with is sort of what are the takeaways that you see as the main things that a policymaker can learn from the book and from your framework in terms of actually trying to deal with these kinds of issues if they're happening within their own country? Um, so I think one of the first policy lessons that I that I took away from my book and that I think could be useful is really separating drug trafficking from violence. And of course, drug trafficking is likely to be violent because it's an illegal market, because of many of the things that happen in it. But it's important to understand that drug trafficking and violence are not always directly related. And that the, the argument that I try to develop in my book is that if you really want to understand why violence is going up or down, you really have to understand what's happening within organizations and what's happening within the state. Um, and I think one thing that is connected to this is the fact that when there is criminal actors present in a location, sometimes a reduction of violence, and many times a reduction of violence, doesn't necessarily mean that drug trafficking has gone down or that the power of an organization has gone down. It actually sometimes reflects something that is that is not as is is not as something as nice that we want to hear, right? Which is that either a criminal group has achieved so much power that it has the ability to control violence, or and as that these relations with the state are so close um, that it has decided to control the use of violence to basically maintain these relationships with the state. Um, of course, killing and homicides have, a, like, really have a huge toll on people and communities. Um, and of course, reducing violence is important, but it's also important to think that sometimes the reasons that go behind these reductions of violence are things that can become the sources of more violence in the future, uh, or that other less visible forms of violence are taking place. So I think this is just a call for for politicians or policymakers to really think of crime as something that is much more complex than they generally tend to think. And that generally making assumptions about drug trafficking and violence as being completely uh, always positively related uh, can lead to policy mistakes. I think the other uh, policy recommendation that I that 
I see as coming from my book is that planning enforcement operations is not just about assuming that they are going to work, but sometimes how and whether a policy works out and how an enforcement action works out really depends of this combination of forces within the state, of that relationship between elected officials and different security agencies. So when you when you just plan a, an enforcement action without really thinking of what are the power relationships within the state, it can lead to a disaster. And that's what happened in Mexico, right? Like Calderon deployed the military without really thinking about the impact that, that that had. And one of the impacts that deploying the military had in many cases was that it created many conflicts within states because not everybody wanted the military, then you had conflicts between the police and the military. And so instead of having a cohesive state that can coordinate actions, you have basically just a, a very fragmented state that is unable to coordinate. I think other few things that come from the group is that you really like the things that reduce violence in the short run are different from the potential changes that can reduce violence structurally. And to say it more clearly, so socioeconomic interactions and socioeconomic policies can reduce violence, but they generally reduce violence in the short term, in the in the long term. You cannot see the effects of those policies very clearly. And generally what reduces violence in the short term and more specific things that may or may not be good for reducing the root causes of violence. So what that means is that sometimes like, politicians, of course, leave on things that happen in the short term. Um, and that's complicated for policies, right? Because if you really want to tackle the root causes of problems, sometimes you have to implement policies that may not seem as effective in the short run, but that have an impact in the long run. Um, and then, of course, I mean, at the end of the book, I spent some time talking about our regulations for drugs. And of course, I, in, the book is focused on drug trafficking. Now, criminal organizations really have many more activities, not only drug trafficking. But of course, regulating drugs differently can have an impact on how criminal groups operate. There are a lot of complications. There are a lot of caveats that have to be taken into account. But I think regulating drugs differently, and I, I don't say legalizing because I don't think we're even close to the point where we can talk about legalizing our drugs, but really rethinking the way that we that we define and structure drug policies is crucial because the policies end up just doing more harm or strengthening more the organizations actually rather than reducing them. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for, for joining and for, for sharing uh, so many interesting facts and stories. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits on the music go to Blue Dot Sessions and to BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sounds, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter at Drugs History or over email, drugshistory at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend or rate on iTunes. Be well and speak soon.